Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Really strong numbers out of a lot of retailers and particularly Amazon last night. Let's bring in our good friend, Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. He is the go-to person on all things retail. And Bert, we saw some really impressive numbers out of the e-commerce giant last night, didn't we? we very impressive numbers. And what it really uh, synthesizes is uh, Jeff Bezos, and to his uh, credit, uh, Mackenzie Bezos, his first wife, who helped co-find the company, really taking a victory lap uh, with six consecutive quarters of of, uh, beating estimates significantly. And the key thing now is Amazon, by this time next year, is going to be the biggest retailer worldwide, eclipsing Walmart and everyone else. So... What is the future like then for investors? I mean, we saw a record EPS, but Jeff Bezos has been known to turn the tap on and turn the tap off in terms of profits. And and, uh, that's a great, great question, Matt. And uh, for us, the key thing is uh, on tap on and off is uh, Bezos and Amazon are increasing CapEx or capital expenditures by over 100% year over year. So, the number to look at is uh, 185 distribution centers worldwide. They'll have more distribution centers than Walmart and everyone else, more efficient, more effective. And what's uh, particularly telling in Amazon's release is that everything's solar and sustainable powered. So Amazon's making money from solar and using it to lower prices. And the perfect compare and contrast is Long Beach, where Kroger and others would not pay hero pay, and they would not uh, put solar on their roofs to save money, make money, uh, lower prices, and increase workers' wages. Amazon does. Kroger's closing up in Long Beach, California, and Amazon's opening its, its new Amazon Fresh stores there uh, to uh, take, uh, run the table from California to the East Coast. Bert, it's just, yeah, it's just extraordinary. I'm wondering about kind of their geographic uh, footprint here. I'm just looking at the PGEO function on the Bloomberg Terminal. It gives you a geographic breakdown of the revenue, about 60% North America, uh, 27% international, then the rest is AWS. Do you expect Amazon to increase their investments and to try to really grow their international footprint? Yeah, uh, Paul, uh, definitely uh, Amazon's international growth, to your good point, is 57% versus 44% uh, overall uh, total corporate growth. And international's uh, going to be a tremendous opportunity as both uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and combined with the accelerating ice age worldwide Amazon is uh, just just going to replace uh, shopping centers and, and shopping malls. And look at Amazon's uh, landing page for Mother's Day. You don't have to go any place uh, to get anything uh, from chocolate to candy to clothes to tech. Uh, and Amazon International is going to be a big part of the growth story going forward. And, Paul, the reason why your question on international is so important is Alibaba with Singles Day generated $30.7 billion in one day last year. Amazon Prime in two days 
generated $10.4 billion. So if Amazon's adding two to three more Prime Days a year and then adds Singles Day internationally, uh, Amazon, Amazon uh, can beat everybody uh, in, in uh, e-retail. And the one Achilles heel for Amazon uh, right, right now is food retail, where the comps are still negative. And, and as you mentioned in the prior segment, uh, concerns about the Federal Trade Commission, but it doesn't look like there's any antitrust in the future either. I mean, it's going to be hard to beat local there. I have here in Berlin occasionally looked at getting food off of Amazon, but it's not as good as we've got local services like Gorillas that deliver in literally 10 minutes. I mean, sometimes less than 10 minutes. Um, and I've become addicted to that. I wonder, though, in, in the bigger picture, Bert, you mentioned at the top that Amazon is going to overtake Walmart as the biggest retailer in the world. The Walton family can't take this lying down, right? Doug McMillan has to do something about it. Walmart's got, um, you know, a million more employees than Amazon, and their market cap is less than a fourth of Amazon. They're trading for $392 billion. Amazon's trading for $1.785 trillion. What can Walmart do about this to try and claw some of that back? Uh, Walmart can win on food, Matt, and uh, that's... That's uh, been, been Amazon's ongoing Achilles heel. And uh, Walmart uh, will be able to deliver to 98% of the U.S. population by the end of this year. So Amazon wins, Walmart wins, Target wins, just about everybody else loses. And, and uh, what I like about your Berlin comment is you know better than I do, uh, Gallery Kaufhof, Karstadt, a lot of the uh, department stores have either closed or cut back in Germany and, and throughout the EU. And Amazon's growing and replacing uh, the bricks-and-mortar stores. And what's notable, uh, to your comment about uh, Berlin and, and Europe, is Walmart failed with all three formats in continental Europe. So where uh, Walmart's failed, uh, Korea, Germany, and elsewhere, uh, Amazon's winning just about everywhere and will continue to win. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Going online is a more pleasant experience than going into a Kalfhoff, I'll tell you that, and, the, and a Karstadt. And they are, we see them closing left and right around here. Bert, thanks so much for joining us. Bert Flickinger there talking to us about Amazon. He's the managing director at Strategic Resource Group. Well, here in the United States, the, the story about the vaccines is a very positive one as vaccine rates continue to increase, and that has a corresponding uh, impact on the economy as the economy begins to open up. And of course, you, you contrast that with what Matt's experiencing in Germany and across Europe. Just, you know, it looks like there's several months behind. Then, of course, uh, the tragedy that's unfolding uh, in uh, India just goes to the importance of getting folks vaxxed up. And, and all through this process, we've been fortunate to speak to experts such as Lauren Sauer, the Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. And I should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio and TV operation. Uh, Dr. Sauer, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess I want to go to the issue of what we heard recently from the CDC about mass and just, you know, behavior, individual behaviors. As more and more people get vaccinated in this country, do you think the messaging is matching what's really going on out there in society? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there is a little bit of a disconnect, and there's also this sense of, um, you know, we're getting vaccinated, we're doing the work, now please let us get out there and get, <laughs> take our masks off and be free, you know. 
and and I completely understand that. You know, we we do want things to get back to normal. I think um, there could have been a little more explicit information in that updated CDC guidance on masking that we would have liked to see around like office usage and things like that. But it is good to see the CDC acknowledging the the safety of the outdoor space, especially as we move into summer and people are anxious to get out there to those outdoor restaurants, you know, outdoor settings um, and be with family members who are vaccinated or friends who are vaccinated again. You know, it does seem like it's kind of silly to wear a mask outside to begin with, right? It seems very performative. Like you're sort of stating your political opinion more than really trying to protect somebody because it's so unlikely to catch the virus in an outdoor setting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the guidance is catching up with the science, right? And so um, one of the most impressive things that has happened in the last year, year and a half is how quickly science has happened and how we're rapidly trying to learn about all these different settings, about aerosol transmission, about contact transmission, like everything about this virus was new when this pandemic started. And so we know that the, the sort of regulatory environment and the policy environment has a lag. And so I think this is we're, what we're seeing is policy and guidance catching up with the science and, you know, the sort of exactly what you're talking about, the things we see, we already feel to be inherent. So the science is there the policy is catching up and and people can take advantage of of that guidance and those recommendations. Uh, Lauren, when do you think we'll know, when will the science come in about perhaps how long these vaccines actually work? Is it six months? Is it 12 months? Is it longer than that? And obviously that'll go to what we do, you know, roughly a year from now. I, I know studies are being done. When do you think that science will be available? Yeah, I think it's already coming in. I mean, I think we're starting to we're watching those first groups of vaccinees who are actually probably on their third dose from from the people who participated in the study. So they're getting their boosters to see what their um, you know what their waning antibodies look like, and um, and that data those data are coming in right. That information is being gathered and a- analyzed right now as we speak, which is really impressive. I think um, on the on the natural infection side. We're just starting to see that information from our earliest patients. So um, people who so generously contributed their time, their specimens, their clinical data, you know, and participated in those observational studies early in the pandemic and continue to participate um, are helping us to understand what happens after we get infected or what happens after we get vaccinated or what happens after we get infected and vaccinated to our immunity. So I, I think, you know, this summer we're going to start to see a lot of data pouring in on um, that first year of infection and what it looks like, along with the seasonality of the virus itself. We have a, a Bloomberg Opinion um, columnist, Kathy O'Neill. She's also a mathematician. She wrote the book Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh, she says, like, you know, people are ridiculously worried about this. Once you're vaccinated, and as many other people are vaccinated as is the case in the U.S., these solutions are 99 point, and these are her numbers, 9999% effective. Aren't we being a little over dramatic at this point? Yeah, I'm not sure I would say, um, I, I'm not sure where those numbers come from. I think um, we know we have an incredibly, a series of incredibly safe and effective vaccines. Plus, when you add these additional protective measures, as we get more and more of the population um, protected through vaccine, those numbers do increase, right? That herd immunity starts to build. 
Um, I, I think some new studies have come out just, I think, in the last couple of days showing that um, after just one dose, you have a reduction in transmission and a reduction in severity. So that's also really exciting to see. But again, you know, you want to wait for that cycle, that full cycle of participants early from the early studies to understand what is the ongoing picture of immunity yep. and protection look like in the community. Absolutely. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Lauren Sauer there from the Johns Hopkins School talking about COVID. Let's turn to commodities here. I'm talking soft commodities like corn, soybeans, wheat, sugarcane. All of these grains are making multi-year highs. Let's get a look at Underhood. What's driving this? We welcome Sal Gilberti, president, CEO, CIO, and co-founder of Two Korean Trading. They trade uh, these commodities. Sal, thanks so much for joining us here. I know our discussion is going to go supply, demand. So where do you want to go first as we think about these commodities setting some multi-year highs? Well, it is supply demand, so that's um, that, that's what's driving these highs. Basically, we are using more grains. In the case of uh, corn and soybeans, we're using more grains two years in a row than we produce globally, and so that that's a very big deal. When you see stocks shrinking, the grain stocks shrinking, um, you you get higher prices. That's as any commodity. It is simply supply demand. What's amazing is that soybean ending stocks, and that means. What's left over after you grow the whole crop and use everything you're going to use, there's generally a little bit left. Um, soybeans are down 80% year-on-year, the projections. Corn, this is U.S., U.S. stocks. Corn down 33% and wheat down This is the inventories, These excess are, inventories. That's correct, excess inventories. And that's, that's enormous. Um, and that's why you've seen these, these large price rises. Usually, I mean, if you have these kind of price gains, I know farmers like to go out and plant more. Are we going to see supply meet demand? Is is this you know the transitory inflation that um, Powell is talking about, or are these prices here to stay? I think these prices are here to stay for more than one season. They they never you know grains are easy to grow, um, but it does take a full growing season, a year. You know, so it, essentially when when the, the USDA did kind of drop a bomb on the market in the last day of of March in their annual uh, acreage report, where they came in with much lower corn and soybean acres in the United States than people anticipated, we will um, raise that number a little bit. So you will see these balance sheet. Um, estimates that are really tight right now kind of loosen a little. But the bottom line is, even factoring in perfect growing weather, um, which is a big if around the world, and we're just planting the seeds now that we're counting on to harvest in the autumn, even with a perfect harvest and a a good yield, we're still not going to rebuild these supplies. It's going to take at least until next growing season, that's autumn of 2022, in the northern hemisphere in order to get these balance sheets back online. And that's assuming good weather. Sal, did the pandemic play uh, any role in this? It seems just like a big miss here on people's supply-side models and demand models. Um, It's true. The pandemic was really confusing because right when it hit, we assumed we'd use a lot less corn for ethanol, and we did. But the the use of that has come roaring back. People panicked, uh, particularly about the use of wheat. We thought, you know, no more cruise lines, no more casinos, no more big parties. And, you know, a cruise line will get 20 tons of wheat delivered to it at a time on big pallets because they're making homemade breads and, you know, the pastas and everything for their bars. (laughs) And people panicked. But guess what? Everybody went home and became a home chef for a while. The number one search on the Internet Mm. globally was for banana bread. And we actually used quarter on quarter, one of the quarters last year. Yeah, there you go. And and we we used more wheat by 1%, according to the wheat board or somebody. And and 
that's a really big deal. We're actually using more. That's the key. We use more grains. The combined use of corn, soybeans, and wheat every single year, and we've, we've studied this back to 1976, is either a global record or they just miss so it's the second highest. It's always rising. So when you have these temporary um, supply disruptions, like lower acres than you expected, like poor weather in Brazil um, for, the, for the second crop corn, these are big deals. And that's why we've seen this price appreciation, which should hold more than a year. I've learned more in the last year about different variations of wheat and flour <laughs> than ever in my life. I've made bread for the first time in my life. I've made pasta for the first time in my life. So uh, you're, you're, you're spot on in terms of that, because I'm not somebody who ever spent time in the kitchen before. Are there any softs that um, where supply is just way too high and, and people um, didn't didn't uh, use as much as we thought they would? Um, you know, nothing jumps out. I mean, people are getting a little nervous about coffee. People, the, you know, there's enough sugar. That's another interesting thing. Short answer, no. But there, in commodities, especially agricultural commodities, there's either enough or there's plenty. We don't ever run out because you price ration. You know, people don't starve because there isn't enough food in the world. They starve because of other reasons, politics and logistics. But so look at it this way. When you're having a birthday party at your house and for five people and you bought the six-inch round cake, it, that's great. And you have plenty. And the doorbell rings and five more people come to surprise you. And you look at that cake and you go, well, there's enough. That's what we're experiencing right now. There's either enough or there's plenty. And that's why the markets get nervous right away. I mean, soybeans in the U.S., we've gone from a 48-day excess supply to yeah. down to a 10-day excess supply. That's, that's unbelievable. Um, we only have 10 days of soybeans left over at the end of this coming year, assuming a good crop and a good harvest. And we, by, we all know about USDA. that. We all know about the lumber prices as well. That's a fascinating story as well. I have to have you back on in the future. Sal Giberti, thanks so much for joining us. He is the CEO of Tucrea. Now let's talk a little bit with Laura Martin. She's a senior analyst at Needham & Company coming to us out of Los Angeles and We've had some pretty big media companies um, out with earnings and, and coming out still this week. Um, among them, I know Paul has has done some work on ANR and found, Laura, you are one of only five out of 41 analysts with an underperform on Netflix. Um, what disappoints you about the streaming service? Well, we think that they're the uh, de facto monopolists. They invented the category. And so the people who are entering late, especially in the last 12 months, are doing much more innovative things around, like, pricing strategies. For example, um, Peacock has a free a three, $5 and a $10 tier. That's a pricing innovation. Bundling, where, like Disney, will give you Disney Plus standalone, but it will also bundle with um, Hulu and with ESPN. For at $13 a month, which is a lower price than the Netflix standard price of $15 a month. And then we're seeing a lot more cross promotions with other types of assets. So I think there's just a lot more innovation going on in the streamers that came late to the party. We're especially um, optimistic about Discovery Plus because David Zaslav said on his call that they're getting $5 for the ad light service and another $5 from advertising. So they're actually getting $10, which is more than they're getting for the ad-free service, and it's more than they're getting on their linear TV network. So that's actually the best economic model right now. But, Laura, none of them have – none of those others have – Narcos. None of them have the Crown. None of um, them have Ozark. I mean, 
there are series on Netflix that you can't live without having seen, and everyone is waiting for the next season, right? No, disagree. I think content quality is necessary but not sufficient because HBO also has that, HBO Max. And what Comcast, what a lot of these guys now have is live sports. And if somebody needs to see the NFL, that is must-be programming for them, much more important than the Ozarks. So I wish, I could, ha- I wish I could get HBO. I live in this small country of 80 million people, <laughs> and HBO is not available in Germany, but Netflix is. <laughs> hey, Laura, you know, actually, well, Matt, just to give you a sense, Laura's been right here on a Netflix, Netflix call. The stock's down 5% year-to-date versus calling an 11 or 12% gain for the S&P. So it's been a good call. Laura, we've also had some of the big – Internet companies report this week, and I know you've covered this space since its inception, and you have a great feel for the the advertising market. We saw some of the big players like uh, Google and Facebook really do well and put up some blockbuster numbers. But when you go to some of the smaller players like Pinterest and then last night Twitter, not so much. So are we seeing you know a, a, a creation of a bifurcated digital ad market? We are. All of the big ad tech that I cover, which is Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon, and Apple, all of them overreported dramatically. Um, And and not only at the top line, they even more dramatically um, overperform, usually 100% overperformance at the EPS line. So what we're seeing is a continued consolidation of revenue into the big fangs, which which are competing with each other, with the best programmers around and the best innovation around. Um, I mean, Twitter is I, – I can't imagine counting Twitter among the others just because it's so small and so niche. Um, but th- in terms of the big ones, what's the concern – and I see you have a buy on um, Amazon and Apple, but on Facebook you have a hold. You have a buy on Google. Mm-hmm. In terms of these big, giant platforms, what's the regulatory concern? So I think regulatory, we have a hold on Facebook because we see the regulatory concerns most there. I think Facebook has sort of irritated everyone in Washington, D.C., regardless of what side of the aisle you're on. And and in part because I think those people are afraid for their jobs. I think they believe that Facebook moderates content to, to douse Republican voices so uh, or conservative voices, let's call it. So I think that that's actually an existential threat to those people's job security. So I think it's most likely to be regulated. Um, I don't really worry that much about either Apple or Amazon particularly. My opinion is that every company suing Apple, which is Spotify and um, uh, Fortnite, which is uh, Epic Games, and so Facebook just picked a big fight with Apple, will lose. Apple will win because what Apple delivers is one billion unique users and a billion, and they have 600 million subscribers now. So the value they're bringing to consumers at a $2,000 price point is sort of second to none. So I believe their platforms will win every regulatory battle. Laura, we've now got just about every one of the traditional media companies that you have long covered on Wall Street is now out with a streaming service. (laughs) Is it too early to rank winners and losers? Or is that reflected in your ratings how are you thinking about some of the traditional media players as they try to, to morph into, you know, kind of streaming first stories? Right. So what I would say is this. Um, it isn't reflective. So, A, the industry design at maturity, so let's call that five years, in my opinion, will be three services in the upper uh, left that have 50 or 60 million subs each, and those are all the broadcasters. Those are anchor-tenanted by the broadcasters who have live sports and live news and the pocketbooks to create live original content. So that's Peacock, 
Paramount Plus and CBS um, and NBC, which is, um, no, I'm forgetting one. Whatever the other broadcaster is, I'm forgetting who it is. Um, so those three are going to win. I do not think Netflix wins. And in the other quadrant, we have specialty, or let's call them passion streaming services. I would put Discovery Plus down there, and I'd put WWE down there, and the Surfing Channel, and the History Channel, and the BritBox. And I, so I think people on average will take four or five services, of which three are the general entertainment services, and then the other you know, one or two per house will be passion services. That's how I think it plays out in the end. And, and, I, and I would say, for sure, our sell on Netflix reflects that. But I would say we should be probably more positive on Discovery. But this year they're going to have huge losses from peak spending on launching Discovery Plus and the Olympics, which cost them like a fortune when they have it. Also, one I tried to subscribe to here, but uh, not available in Germany. These people need to do a little bit more work if they want to access <laughs> a big market like this. But you don't think, Laura, that we're headed to, you know, somebody's going to have the brilliant idea to bundle all these streaming services and make a set-top set top box and then sell them all together like new cable? Oh, I do. I think that's what Xfinity is going to do. I think that's what Comcast will do. Um, but I don't think that's what the consumer wants, Paul. The whole reason we debundled the big big bundle is because people want the choice to, to individually subscribe for these. All right, Laura, real quickly, 10 seconds. You live in Los Angeles. Walt Disneyland, Disneyland just opened today. Are you going? Yes, absolutely. As soon as I can get a ticket. They've raised prices again, but the much lower attendance is fabulous. There you go. Laura Martin, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Laura Martin, she's a senior analyst at Needham & Company. She's been covering this media space, Matt, for a couple of three decades and just been all over some of the most innovative research out there, uh, as you know, exemplified by her cautious stance on Netflix. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.